This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. Young people have lost their trust in adults. Parents have lost their trust in teachers. And teachers have lost their faith in themselves. This is Lisa Childers. She's a high school English teacher in Arkansas. I can't be part of the solution. I don't think I'm part of the problem. There was no point for my wrecking my health, my relationships, and just continuing to try and try. It, uh, it becomes the equivalent of an abusive relationship. There are a lot of educators like Lisa around the country. They are worried and confused about new laws limiting education on issues like race, racism, gender, and sex. Lisa is just one of dozens of teachers who spoke with The Post about what their jobs have been like over the last few years. You've got teachers who are feeling like they're no longer sure what they're legally allowed to teach under these laws that can often be very vaguely worded. And you've also got teachers who are facing pressure from parents or worried that they're going to face pressure from parents if they teach something that comes across somehow as either politically motivated or ideologically influenced or inappropriate for kids as judged by their parents. Hannah Natanson covers education for The Post. She did an analysis of these new laws and found there are at least 64 of them reshaping education that 25 states have passed. So in theory, that's at least half of the country. I can't tell you for sure an exact number that's reporting on this could be really difficult to suss out. Some of them are less directly binding than others. There might be districts that are sort of standing up and fighting back. There might be districts that are ignoring it. So it's really hard to say, but it is certainly a significant number. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Tuesday, March 14th. Today, what teachers are not teaching in the classroom. Hannah explains the forces behind these changes in education and the consequences for not just teachers, but for students. Hannah spoke with Post Reports producer Arjun Singh. I'll let Arjun and Hannah take it from here. Hannah, do you have a sense of, like, how many teachers and students have been or will be affected by these changes? Recently, I reported on a study, a nationally representative sample of 8,000 teachers, and it was reported that at least a quarter of the teachers surveyed said they were revising their curricula or their books they had on display in their classroom or what they were willing to say or teach to kids. And one of the striking things was that it was not only teachers in states that had restrictive laws. One of the findings of the study was that oftentimes teachers weren't sure if their state had such a law or not. And many of the folks even if they knew that their state didn't have such a law, they were just worried about the climate. And many, many teachers in this survey sample, when they were asked, what is the primary reason you're making these revisions? They didn't point to state laws. They didn't point to district policies. The most common reason was actually parental pressure. So reporting on that study is what made me want to figure out what precisely teachers were really cutting from their lessons because I wanted to know what specifically has gone missing and why. And I know that you went out and you actually spoke to a lot of teachers about this. What were they telling you? What were the things that they had to change in their lessons because of all of this? So I, I sought stories from teachers across the country. I got tales from folks in 20 different states. And ultimately, I winnowed it down to a list of six that really had stuck with me. 
I learned about a teacher who had been forced to stop teaching passages from Christopher Columbus's journal. Another teacher was told he could not tell students slavery was wrong. Math teacher in Northern Virginia stopped using, under administrative suggestion, a data set that examined the New York Police Department's use of force by race. There was another teacher in Arkansas who was effectively dissuaded from assigning her students Mary Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. These were among the things that teachers were telling me that they had removed that really stuck with me. You mentioned that a teacher could not say that slavery was wrong. Can you tell me more about this teacher and how he dealt with this? So this teacher is a man named Greg Wickenkamp who used to teach eighth grade social studies in Iowa. And he started feeling unsure of what he was allowed to teach in June 2021 because that's when Iowa passed a law, one of these laws circumscribing education on race that is kind of broad and vaguely worded. It's troubling in many ways, but especially for it stating that systemic racism or systemic oppression should not be taught. And then there is also concern that no student be made to feel uncomfortable um, for any identities that they might have. Greg Wickenkamp did not understand what this meant. And so he spent the semester trying to get confirmation from the school district as to what he could and could not say in class. He shared with me emails that show his repeated requests to administrators detailing what he was teaching, what he planned to teach, and asking, is this okay? Can I teach this? Does the district support this curriculum? And if not, what other alternatives should I use? I didn't receive this level of support I was looking for. He got little response. They did not respond at all. And eventually things escalated to the point that he was facing parent pressure from folks unhappy with both his obedience to a district policy at that time requiring masking and his use of a book that has drawn a lot of conservative criticism, stamped Racism, Anti-Racism, and You by Jason Reynolds and Ibram X. Kendi. And at the same time... A politician started uh, scapegoating my, my, my teaching practice, saying that it was un-American, that I was indoctrinating youth to hate white people, um, that I was breaking the law and so schools should not be funded. A local politician starts paying attention to what Greg Wickenkamp is doing and says publicly that he is teaching children critical race theory, which is this academic framework at the college level that holds that racism is systemic in the United States and explores its consequences, and which has become a term on the right that is sort of a catch-all for instruction on race that they believe is politically motivated. Which... which was really hurtful um, because I, I feel like my calling is in education and, and um, I know that education has broadened my world tremendously and so uh, I, I was trying to do nothing more than support students. And so facing all of this external pressure and feeling unsupported by his district, Greg Wickenkamp winds up requesting a Zoom meeting with the superintendent, a woman named Lori Knoll, he asked her, is he allowed to teach students that slavery is wrong? Because he doesn't understand under this new law if he's still allowed. Is it right. acceptable for me to teach students that slavery was wrong? 
I think it goes back to um, the part with critical race theory is that we can say this is what happened in our history. And we we had people that um, that were slaves within our within our state. We're not supposed to say to them, how does that make you feel? We can't. Or does that make you feel bad? We're, we're not to do that part of it. That, um, is, to say, is slavery wrong? I really need to delve into it to see, is that is that part of what we can or cannot say? And I don't know that, Greg, because that's I just don't have that. And she said she's not sure. And I don't know. And so he wound up feeling that he was not allowed to teach students anything about that. And at the end of the year, he stopped teaching in K-12 because he just, among other reasons, he just felt totally set adrift and unsupported. I did not want to do that um, because I love teaching so much. And uh, I know that there are teachers in that district and teachers elsewhere who are still doing wonderful work, uh, who are able to persevere in ways that I was not. Wow. I know that the superintendent later said that the district supported Greg with content from a neighboring school district, but he took that decision to resign. How much did that weigh on him? Because I have to imagine that he was so drawn into teaching, probably because of a passion. And so to have this happen must have been a really powerful force that pushed him in this direction. I mean, I think his body language in the video clip that he shared with me of that interaction with the superintendent, which he recorded, she knew he was recording, and which he shared with me for the story, I think his body language kind of says that really eloquently. After she finishes saying, I don't know if you can teach that, he sits back in his seat, he raises his eyebrows, he purses his lips, and he just shakes his head. And I think he mutters to himself a quiet, soft, wow. Um, I'm sorry on that part. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think with the five minutes running down, um, I, I understand the level of support I'll be provided from here on out. I appreciate your time. Um, thank you for meeting today. He was really demoralized. And I do hear that from a lot of teachers. Wow. And, you know, I know one other person that you spoke with for the story, they were told that they could not teach a lesson on Christopher Columbus and his journal What was the story there? Why couldn't they teach something from a primary source document? So this teacher had used, it was a teacher in North Carolina, and this teacher had used Christopher Columbus's journal for 14 years without a problem. And part of this lesson on Christopher Columbus involved reading a chapter from Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. And in that chapter, there are slices of passages lifted directly from the Explorer's Journal. And these passages describe... Columbus's views of and interactions with the native peoples. And he writes things including, they would make fine servants with 50 men. We could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want. And he writes, as soon as I arrived in the Indies, I took some of the natives by force. Again, she had taught this for 14 years without a problem. But last school year, when she tried to assign the same assignment to her sophomore honors world history class, a parent had an issue. And this parent wrote in and said, this is making my white son feel guilty. And the teacher said she replied by asking some version of, why would your child feel guilty about what Columbus did to the Arawak? 
the parents escalated the issue to human resources and an administrator wound up meeting with this teacher and told her that she needed to stop pushing an agenda and that she was teaching children in a way that was biased. And the teacher could not understand what could possibly be viewed as biased by letting Columbus speak for himself in his own words and his own journal excerpt. The school district said they couldn't comment on this, but did say that disciplinary action follows state laws. So can you help me understand more of the power that parents have had in these pressure campaigns and in changing curriculums? Like, what has kind of been the historic or standard relationship between parents and curriculums? And if you could, could you illustrate the kind of pressure teachers do feel when parents are responding negatively to their curriculums? Like, why do teachers feel a pressure to have to change just because parents are getting involved? I want to be careful here because I think it has actually always been a goal of public schools and public school teachers to have parents be involved. Teachers I talk to all the time say they want their parents involved in kids' lives because that means that the parents are paying attention to the kid, they're loving the kid. Teachers want parents involved, and parents want to be involved. I think the new aspect here is the feeling that you can face as a teacher professional or personal consequences for going against a parent's wishes. And that goes beyond, according to some of the teachers that I speak with, right, that goes beyond what they've traditionally understood their role to be in terms of their relationship to parents. They tell me that they are happy in a situation where they're hearing from parents and getting to sit down with them and talk through concerns. What they're finding disturbing about the new environment is that In some places, in some states, in some districts, there are policies that could lead to punishment for the teacher if they are caught out in a certain way. So, for example, there are an increasing number of bills that are trying to do things such as, for example, criminalize uh, what will happen if a librarian, a school librarian, among others, is, is faced with allegations that they have provided, you know, extremely inappropriate material to students, and that could lead to even jail time or fines. So I think the other element, too, is that sometimes teachers feel that social media is sort of another front in this war because there are these powerful parent Facebook groups that spring up during the pandemic in some places. And if you, as a teacher, many teachers have said this to me, they fear that if they get caught by a student saying something in a slice of a lesson, that if you take it out of context, it could seem inappropriate. You know, they're worried that they're going to start making the rounds on social media and then possibly make it onto national media like Fox News. A lot of teachers are scared of being the next headline on Fox News. What have these teachers told you is at risk of not being able to have these kind of open discussions in their classrooms? They just feel that the students won't be given a chance to grow as people and as citizens who can live in the modern, diverse, and connected world that we all inhabit. And also, if you go through life totally coddled all the time, never being made to feel uncomfortable to think about the perspectives and experiences of those with lives far different than your own, they feel that you're less rich as a person rich in terms of the sense of having a wealth of knowledge and empathy and diverse experiences to think about and to draw upon. And society becomes less rich as a whole as well because it's filled with people who only know what they and people like them think and do and and talk about. After the break, 
Arjun and Hannah talk about what happens when a teacher tries to stand up for their lesson plans. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra Processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity, all with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com slash itheroes. Did you talk to any teachers who had actually tried to really defend their lesson plans? And what kind of pushback were they getting, whether from school administrators or others? But what was it like when they actually stood up for their lesson plans? So that makes me think of the teacher in Arkansas who really wanted to assign a vindication of the rights of women by Mary Wollstonecraft. So the specific thing that I was asked to remove from my curriculum had to do with a supplementary material that really wasn't designed for all of the students. It it was simply an extension reading for people who had gotten interested. For a class based around the book Educated by Tara Westover, which is a memoir about growing up in a survivalist Mormon family from a splinter sect that does not believe in, in educating women. This teacher, Lisa Childers, was having trouble interesting her students in this book, she said. But she noticed that a handful of female students, their curiosity was sparked by Westover's references to Mary Wollstonecraft, who, you know, is a famous 18th century British philosopher and writer. And her best known work, arguably, is A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, which is a passionate plea for women's equality. I took excerpts of it, uh, of the uh, Wollstonecraft piece, really downplaying the woman part and uh, uh, really highlighting the education and how education brings enlightenment and so on. And she gets told by an assistant principal who was looking at the teacher's curriculum online, you know, why are you teaching this? She said, this principal, assistant principal, in a copy of an email I was able to review, wrote that she had a few questions and, and listed off, what is the purpose of using it? referring to Wollstonecraft's essay. How is it connected to what you are doing? Is it connected by skills? Is it connected by theme? And so at first, Lisa Childers tries to defend this optional reading assignment. And what, what was disheartening was the amount of time that was spent on researching uh, an answer that I felt almost ended up being an, a legal brief, uh, being peppered with questions about why the material was connected when I thought it was very clear. She writes up lengthy documents sharing her rationale for teaching it. She writes at one point, it is a famous historical work regarding the education of women that also has universal application. She writes that it can assist high school seniors who are developing arguments to address the essential question, what does it mean to be educated? She writes at another point, Tara Westover directly references Mary Wollstonecraft and other historical voices. It is a famous piece, both historically and as a work of literature. I assumed the thematic connection was self-explanatory. But this assistant principal just keeps emailing with questions. Why is this necessary? Why do you need to teach this? What are students gaining from this? How is this connected to a lesson plan? Please provide a, a full lesson plan justifying your use of it. And eventually, Lisa is just so disheartened that she just gives up. I remember spending a solid six hours trying to craft my argument. 
And eventually, it's, it simply wasn't worth it. The, atmosphere, the hurried atmosphere and just atmosphere of constant scrutiny. And I have to say here that I do believe everybody involved believes that they're doing what they're supposed to be. But schools are trying to stay out of trouble. And I think sometimes imagining issues that perhaps aren't there. She takes a suggested reading off the syllabus and she finishes out educated with the kids continuing to remain uninterested in the book broadly. And she just feels so frustrated and saddened. My main concern is that teachers aren't, don't seem to be trusted to conduct a, uh, a discussion to keep things within bounds and by students or by parents or by administrators. So we're, we're somewhat being treated like children. The discussions aren't interesting uh, in class, if there are any. And ultimately, the material just loses life. There's a horrible irony, she said, because Wollstonecraft is one of the authors that when Tara Westover finally escapes and gets to go to college, Wollstonecraft is one of the authors that she is so thrilled to read. And so Childers told me that she just couldn't believe that her class in miniature enacted the reverse of a, a broadening of a viewpoint that the author of Educated experienced in her book. I recently realized there's nothing I can do about this situation, and so I did resign uh, with no intention to come back to teaching. We should note that in response to Childers' account, a school official wrote in a statement that Childers did not supply a, quote, requested lesson plan to adequately justify including Wallstonecraft's work as a part of her lesson, end quote. Hannah, what concerns are brought up by people who want to ban these ideas that we've been talking about? I think when it comes to books, typically the concern that I hear most often from parents who I speak to who are challenging books is that the book is sexually inappropriate, it has graphic material that is not age-appropriate, or sometimes that it touches on subjects that they think it is their right and their prerogative to discuss with their child at home. They don't want their child to be taught about these issues that are sort of at some of the tensest points of our society, issues such as being transgender or being gender fluid. They don't want that to come from the school because they have their own strong stance on that. I will say that there's in general a parental emphasis on returning to the basics. With great justification, they do point to the fact that students' test scores have dropped significantly since the pandemic. And the argument from them is that let's have works that are really focusing on teaching kids the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic. We don't need works that push social ideals or ideas, right? We need basic fundamental works that help kids learn how to read, write, and reckon with numbers. When it came to some of the teachers I talked to for this story, those who found replacements for the things they had cut, it tended to be things they thought would be really non-controversial. So there was another teacher I spoke with who removed Huck Finn and Of Mice and Men from her syllabus because both books have the N-word and a great deal of profanity and white parents in their district had recently begun 
seriously complaining about inappropriate profanity and inappropriate use of the N-word in those texts. And so they quietly nixed those. And instead, they sent out to students a whole list of science fiction novels uh, and dystopian novels. She thought those were least likely in terms of genres of fiction to cause parental complaints. One of the issues at hand seems to be that the language used to create the laws and rules governing what teachers can teach is pretty broad at the end of the day. And I'm really curious, who is responsible for interpreting those laws on that local school level? Who ultimately is the arbiter of saying, this book violates this law, you cannot teach that? It can vary depending on the state and the district, but usually it comes down to district administrators. A lot of these laws sort of kick implementation to the district level, which creates a kind of crazy patchwork quilt of different policies and different interpretations. But the district, as has long been the case, I will emphasize, has the power to decide within the standards set by the state of curricula and what should be taught, whether a given text or lesson fulfills those objectives. So it's been once described to me as sort of a set of Russian nesting dolls, right? The state is the outermost Russian nesting doll, which sets the broad standards. Within that, you have districts which interpret those standards. And then when you get down to the classroom level, the teacher is interpreting what the district is saying. Hannah, we've been talking about how these laws from Republican legislatures are impacting teachers and taking hold in the classroom. But how has this issue been fueled more broadly, politically and culturally, in the U.S.? I think culturally and societally, you can look at it in two ways. First of all, purely in the realm of education, there was a great deal of uncertainty and fear and frustration and anger unleashed by the shuttering of schools during the pandemic, felt by parents all across the political spectrum. I think societally, more broadly, the pandemic was a moment of upheaval that also coincided with things like the murder of George Floyd and the nationwide protests against systemic racism that swept America, followed by, many would point out, to a conservative backlash to some of the ideas advanced during those protests. And on top of everything else, you have political turmoil, is one word for it, uh, intensity for sure, both because politicians were noting that they had a large group of constituents, mothers and fathers, who were deeply motivated and cared a lot about one of the most fundamental issues you can care about as a parent, which is your kid and how your kid is learning. And so some politicians saw this as an opportunity to jump on these issues and gain currency with the voting population. You saw Ron DeSantis sees on this in Florida. We believe in education, not indoctrination. You saw Glenn Youngkin win the governorship in Virginia by seizing on education as a, as a major issue. Frankly, if anything, political attention to these issues is only intensifying because we're heading into the 2024 presidential election. DeSantis is a huge contender. And so you have, again, on top of already societal and cultural reasons for people to be paying attention to schools, you have politicians eager to fan the flames, as it were. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you for having me. Hannah Natanson is a national education reporter for The Post. She spoke with Post Reports producer Arjun Singh. 
That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Eliza Dennis. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins. Thanks also to Adam Kushner. If you're listening to us right now on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a review. We want to know what you think about the show, and these reviews really help other people find Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra Processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity. All with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com slash itheroes.